Although we are scattered in various places today, ten of us here in the building, others of you in various places, united by, by one Holy Spirit, we together offer praise to God for all that He is and has done. We remind ourselves in the songs that we've been singing in the scripture that we heard read about who God is, and who we are, and what we are called to be as God's people. And we worship God by opening up our hearts to hear his word and obediently respond. One of the things I didn't tell you about myself when I was named interim preaching pastor at Crestwick Church about two months ago was that I'm a refugee. It was 43 years ago that um, my family immigrated here from the USA. And, and I came to Canada as an ecclesiastical refugee from the evangelical battle of Armageddon. Maybe I'll explain to you sometime what that's all about. At, at the heart of it all was that um, I, I served in an environment in the USA in which details about the second coming of Christ were considered sufficiently important to be a point of division if we didn't draw our prophecy charts the same way. So um, let's, let's just say I was on the wrong side of that. And, um, and thus ended up crossing the border, going north to the promised land. It may be cold, but it's the promised land for me. And that's been good for me. Because I, I was tired of being described as unorthodox. Uh, because I had my arrows in the wrong place on the prophecy chart. And so, serving here in Canada has been a breath of fresh air for me. So I'm, I'm grateful that in, in my tribe here, we, we don't make differences of understanding about how we fit together all the details of the return of Christ, a litmus test for fellowship. That's a good thing, I think. But like, like most good things, the side of the second coming, there's a dark side to it. And the dark side is that sometimes in, in our, our desire not to offend one another and, and not to create arguments about the details surrounding the second coming, we, we never talk about the second coming. And so... And so in, I've found in many churches the, the idea of the personal glorious return of Christ is sort of like a well-kept secret. And, and, but occasionally it gets passing reference. Well, something's wrong there because the hope of the return of our Lord in glory is, is very much at the heart of the life of the church in, as we see it in the New Testament. In, in our march through the first epistle of Peter, we saw right at the beginning in the first chapter 
that, that Peter talks about the fact that God has given us hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the hope is for the, the final installment, the perfection of our salvation at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes and is publicly revealed. And then in the middle of the epistle, in the early part of chapter 4, we find that, that Peter, Peter refers again to the return of the Lord and with its focus on the fact that when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead. Then he will talk about it again later on at the end of the fourth chapter when, when he talks about how when he comes, judgment will begin with the household of God and proceed on to everyone. And so, and so for Peter, writing to believers whom he calls exiles, pilgrims, sojourners, it's, it's important that we, that we affirm this hope and that we look forward to the return of Christ. But as we've seen in history, sometimes if, if, we've, if we focus in wrong ways on that hope of the return of Christ, we, we fixate on it in, in a way that, that makes us think that somehow we are clearly at, at the end. And so, historically, we've had various times when people got into the practice of dating the return of Christ. In the middle of the 19th century, in 1843, a man named William Miller with an elaborate way of putting together the numbers from the book of Daniel and piecing it together with the book of Revelation, decided that clearly Christ was going to come again in the fall of 1843. I don't have to tell you, it didn't happen that way. When it didn't happen that way, initially he, he said, oh, I, I, I got the numbers a little bit wrong, it's actually... I think it was May of 1844, uh, that came and went. And then he said, no, I, I got it finally, October 1844, and that came and went. In 2012, a man named Harold Camping, who was a kind of a radio, Christian radio personality, in fact, I think he owned a chain of Christian radio stations, concluded with uh, his own kinds of calculations that, that Christ was going to return and the end of the age would come in, in May 2012. I, as I recall, there was all, not only was the, the Bible, but there were, there were things about the Mayan calendar that factored into all that. Can't remember the details. May 2012 came and went. And Harold, like William Miller, said, got it a little bit wrong. Actually, it's going to be, I think it was October 21st, 2012. You know the rest of the story. The story didn't end that way. And, and that, that enabled many people around us in the wider world to sort of ridicule the whole idea of an actual end of the age and a return of Christ. 
Now, the, those William Miller and Harold Camping are, are just particularly bad examples of, of actually ignoring Jesus' words, no one knows the day or the hour, you just watch and be ready. Others have not gone quite that far, but they've, they've edged up to it by suggesting that, well, they're very, if we put the Bible together properly, then we can say the Lord will come by, say, the 1988. Still remember, 1972, right after I graduated from Dallas Seminary, uh, my wife and I moved from Dallas back to uh, the Indianapolis area, our, to our hometown, and, and we're there for a while. And, and not long after we got back there, there, were, there was a, a citywide crusade in Indianapolis at the fairgrounds, Speaker Jack Van Impey. Jack Van Impey, well-known evangelical preacher, well-known um, specialist in Bible prophecy. I, I confess I was a little nervous, but, but I went, so my wife and I got on the church bus along with a bunch of other people from our home church and went to the meeting. And Jack, of course, preached on the second coming. And, and he was on the verge of saying, Jesus is going to come back before 1988. Part of that was about, uh, about 1948, the reconstitution of the state of Israel, Jesus' words about this generation in Matthew 24, in my opinion, improperly understood. But part of it was that, and then part in the, in the middle of the message, he even even said, look, the Bible says a day is with the Lord is a thousand days. A thousand days is a day. That's a way of suggesting that history is going to follow the pattern of six days of work and the Sabbath rest. Something like 6,000 years of human history, and then Christ will come, and then the millennium. So, Okay, and I'm, I'm thinking, really? And then he said, look, I'm not just making this up. You can read this in the epistle of Barnabas. And I thought, yes, that's a mid-second century piece of writing that's in fact not a part of canonical scripture. I'd be a little embarrassed, Jack, about that. We're walking back to the church bus after all that. And, and a dear elderly woman walking beside me said, wow, what did you think of that sermon? And, I mean, it's a little like being asked, what do you think of that baby? When the baby is not the most beautiful baby in the world. And so I said, wow, that was some sermon. <laughs> and I let it go at that. One of the few times in my life that I've bitten my tongue and not said what I really wanted to say. So it's possible to be overly fixated on the end in such a way that, that we get caught up in that and miss the reality of the present. But the way the apostles present it in the New Testament is the hope of the return of Christ and the end of this age our, our sure and certain hope that history will not just go on the way it is now forever and ever, 
That, that ought to motivate us to be the faithful people of God in the here and now, in the present. When he comes again, Peter has told us, and the other apostles told us, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And, and what he will judge, rightly, will not just be what we happen to be doing on the day he returns, but all that we have thought and said and done. And so, if we have this hope, then we ought to be able to, in a sense, relax about some of the tensions we face in the present and simply live as the faithful people of God, knowing Christ is going to make it turn out right in the end. And that's what Peter tells us in the middle of 1 Peter 4. Here are his words. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. That's not the end of the epistle, so that's a reminder that amen does not mean the end. Amen means so be it. Right on. That's a free translation, I admit, but something like that. So, Peter says, I've... I've, I've talked about the revelation of Christ for which we wait in the fullness of our salvation. I've talked about him coming to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things, all that that I'm talking about, it's near. Which is not to say it's definitely going to happen week after next. It is saying since the first advent, we've been living in the last days. And we don't know when the Lord will bring this age to an end. And so every day, we're called to live faithfully. We, we, we serve faithfully and we wait. It could be in our generation. It might not be. It might be. We simply don't know. And so Peter doesn't say the end of all things is near. Therefore, Let's look at Scripture and see if we can figure out the time of it. No, what he says is, frankly, very basic stuff. He says, the hope of the end to come should motivate us to focus on being Christ's faithful community in the present. So it means, for example, in verse 7, be alert and of sober mind. Not fanatical, but of sober mind, so that you may pray. Be sober-minded and pray. 
And yet, if we remember the way the Lord taught his disciples to pray, we recognize that there is a connection between prayer and the coming of the kingdom. So when the disciples said, how should we pray? And Jesus provides a bit of a, an example and a template. It's about half a dozen requests. Father in heaven, let your name be sanctified. Notice in, 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 in the English translation, it's, it is hallowed be your name, not hallowed is your name. It's not a statement of fact. It is a request, actually. Father, let your name be sanctified. Act in such a way that you are honored. Further spelled out by, let your kingdom come. And the point of all that is, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Peter, following our Lord, says, be sober-minded and pray. We pray for the coming of God's kingdom. For the coming of it in its fullness and for, its, for the preview of it, its manifestation now in the present. As, as the risen Christ saves sinners and unites us with himself, delivers us from the kingdom of darkness, brings us into his kingdom now. And in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, give us today our daily bread. Lord, meet our daily needs. We pray, forgive us our, our debts or our sins, to use Luke's terminology for, in the, for the prayer, even as we forgive others. And we, we as pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, facing trials, pray, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I, over the years, I've sometimes thought, now, it's interesting. In that prayer, we're really praying for God to do what he has told us he's going to do. He's going to bring his kingdom. In, in Matthew 6, the same chapter as the Lord's Prayer, we have Jesus' words, God will provide for your food and clothing. He will provide your needs. We have assurance of forgiveness, and, and we know that God is not going to cause us to be tempted to sin. So we're really praying for what God has promised he will do, and, that, and, and by engaging us in prayer for all that, God is reminding us when he does those things that it's he who has done it, and that we are dependent on him. So, rather than being fixated on the schedule, Peter says, be sober-minded and pray. And then he said, as you relate to one another in this interim time between the first advent and the second advent in these last days, love one another intentionally and diligently. Verse 8, above all, that comes as no surprise that he would say love is the preeminent thing, right? Because our Lord himself said the whole law of God is fundamentally about two commands, to love the Lord your God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
So this is a primary thing. Love each other deeply. And the, the Greek word Peter uses here doesn't refer to the passion of love, the feeling of love. It's not about love each other passionately in that sense. It's more like love each other with intentionality, do it diligently, zealously. In other words, work at loving one another. He says that because loving one another, while we are still incompletely sanctified, means that sometimes we love one another in spite of the way we behave toward one another. And so that's why he says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, he's, he's thinking back there to a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. In other words, hatred means you, if you wrong me, I, I will cause trouble about that. But love, love covers it over. Love, love does not insist on continuing the strife. And in, chapter, in Proverbs 17, 9, whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. In other words, if, if I love you in the way that Peter is talking about, even if you offend me, you commit an offense against me, I, I'm not going to remember that forever and hold that against you. I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to forgive and say, the sight of the second coming, we're all imperfect. And I don't have to spend my life paying you back for what you've done to me. I can overlook that. We don't always do that. I, I remember years ago when I was a pastor in Toronto, I was visiting with a, a couple in the church who'd been married for about 35 years. And, and they were having some tensions in that marriage. And I, I discovered that she had wronged him in, in a particular way about a decade earlier. And he simply would not let it go. He kept bringing it up. And so it was no great shock when that marriage fell apart. Peter says, as, as the people of God living in, in this age, in this world as it really is, we, we sometimes are not only wronged by the unbelieving world, we, we sometimes sin against each other. But love means I, I'm not going to let that determine our relationship forever. I can overlook that. I, I think... I think over the last year or so, God has been teaching me a bit more about that. It's, it's been very painful to see the way that the, the restrictions on the church during the pandemic have created polarization within the church. 
among God's people about how we ought to respond to the restrictions. And so we have this unfortunate, painful, awkward, well, dialogue, hopefully, among us about that. And, and that means I, I, I've entered into that in some public ways. And so I can tell you, it's, it's not really fun to be called a snake in the grass on Facebook. Um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not fun to be insulted on Twitter. But I think the Lord has been teaching me they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is painful, but I must not let my life and my attitude be determined by that. I, I can overlook some of that and not, certainly not pay back in the same form. So Peter says, as God's people, experiencing trial and stress in this age, remember you work hard at loving one another. And then he says, one manifestation of that, verse 9, will be to offer hospitality to one another, to be generous in offering hospitality. Hospitality shows up even in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, when Paul gives criteria for those who are going to serve as overseers or elders in the church. In, in the first century church, in the very early church, hospitality was crucial in many respects to the mission of the church because as preachers traveled around the Roman world, evangelizing and ministering to the church, they needed hospitality from God's people. Uh, you, you see a little glimpse of this in, in, in 2 John, the little epistle, 2 John. Now there, it's on the negative side where John says, if a false teacher comes your way who denies the truth about Christ, do not welcome him into your home. Don't show him hospitality. To show hospitality is, is, a, is an important way of affirming one another. Uh, someone once wrote a book called Open Heart, Open Home. And... And Peter says, do it without grumbling. Offer hospitality generously to one another without saying, really? I've got to clean the house again? Got to do this again? I think the, the, the place or the point in my life at which I, I, I began to learn a bit more about the significance of hospitality was would have been the two times that I've had the chance to, uh, to be in Uganda. Twice I've gone along with the mission team from our church to Uganda. I've had the chance to teach in a seminary there and, and to be involved in a few other ways with the mission team. So I'll never forget the, the one Sunday when I went with the president of the seminary out to a church in, uh, out in the villages. I, I mean, this is a church in which when, when people bring their offering, they bring it to a large basket sitting on a table at the side of the church building, which is a mud hut. 
Some put in their Ugandan shillings and some put in their fruits and vegetables. These are not wealthy people. And yet, when the president of the seminary and I went to one of the church members' homes for a meal after that church service, they, they laid out quite a Ugandan spread, which I'm sure cost them a lot. But the Ugandan believers are, are certainly among the most joyful and the most generous of believers I have ever met. And Peter says that's, that's the way we ought to be. As, as we live with the reality of the present, waiting for the end to come, we love each other and show hospitality. And then he will say, as we wait the end, verse 10, we serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. Every one of you, use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter's talking here about what Paul talks about in various places, gifts of the Spirit. Same Greek term, charisma. And, and he says, we're, we are not owners of those abilities God has given us, we are stewards. And we're called to use those abilities to serve one another. And he, and he emphasizes that God's grace comes to us to enable us to serve him and others in various forms. Or to put it the way the Apostle Paul does back in 1 Corinthians 12, we all have the same spirit. We have all been baptized in the one spirit, into one body. But we don't all have the same manifestations of the Spirit. God's grace comes to us in various forms. The Spirit enables us in various ways. And, and we are called to serve one another by using whatever gifts God has given me to serve you and by my receiving from you ways in which God shows the Spirit in your life. We all need to get it clear in our heads in this body metaphor that there is one body, diverse members, all gifted by the Spirit, and we all have contribution to make, and we all need to receive the contributions of one another. We don't have to be all alike. We don't all have to have the same abilities. The Spirit does not show himself in exactly the same way in every one of us, and that's okay. But in whatever way, Peter says, he's enabled you to serve, do it. And so he spells that out. If, if, if your gift involves speaking, verse 11, then you should do so as one who speaks like the oracles of God, the words of God. In other words, if, if your gift involves speaking, make sure that you are speaking God's truth. It's not about personal opinion. It's about God's truth. 
Back in Romans 12, in the passage that we heard earlier in the service, Paul talks about seven different kinds of gifts that, that we as the people of God might have. Three of them involve speaking. Prophesying, there's debate about this among Bible interpreters, but appears to mean those who are gifted by God to, to speak in a way that's specially and directly prompted by the Spirit on occasion. And he talks about those who teach, those who pass along the truth that has been revealed. And then he, he talks about those who encourage or exhort. Uh, the word can be translated various ways. It has different kinds of nuances. For example, I mean, if you think of the word, the English word encourage, which is one way to translate it. If, if I encourage you, that doesn't always have exactly the same flavor, does it? If, if you are dis, discouraged, fretting about things, worrying when you don't need to, then I might encourage you by saying, hey, it's okay. You don't need to worry. But if you're drifting off path, away from faithful discipleship, I might say, I'm encouraging you to get back on track. I'm exhorting you to pay attention to your life. Either, either one of those flavors could be an application of that term, but, but Peter's point is, if, if your ability involves speaking, do it. Do it in a way that communicates God's revealed truth. That's what you need. That's what others need. That's the standard. But then he says, for some of you, it's not, it's not a speaking kind of gift. It's a serving kind of gift. If you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides. Here we're talking about serving by actions as opposed to speaking. So back in Romans 12, four of the seven that Paul talks about are, are not about speaking. He, he talks about service generally there, which often, often had the idea of, of uh, meeting the needs of the poor, of the impoverished. And so... Some are called in a special way to that. He talks there about a gift of giving. God has blessed some believers with much greater material resources than others. And God has given to some believers a special kind of ability to contribute to the needs of others. And Paul says, do it generously, if that's your gift. Back in Romans 12, Paul, Paul says, another kind of gift is a gift of leading. 
And the one with that gift, he says, should do it with diligence. That's, that's a gift of doing, of action. It will no doubt involve some speaking along the way, but it's fundamentally about action, helping God's people achieve our mission. And the end of the list is a gift of showing mercy. Do it cheerfully, Paul says. Peter says, if, if that's the way God has strengthened you, to show mercy to hurting people, then do it. That's probably behind the scenes. It may be that no one else will know, but the person who's hurting will definitely care. And so we as God's people, Peter says, we, we need to recognize that, that we are called as a community of pilgrims and exiles in this world to serve God by serving one another as we wait for the end. And all of that, he says, in order that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about what faithful believers will be doing on the day when the Lord returns? Think about it. On whatever day the Lord returns, it will be a different time of day at different points around planet Earth. And there'll be different seasons of the year. Believers will be involved in doing a great variety of things. So some, when the Lord returns, will be teaching the Bible to others. Some will be studying to teach the Bible to others. Some will be praying for the sick. Some will be housing the homeless, feeding the hungry. Some will be involved in gospel conversations with their neighbors or friends at work or at school. Some will be students who are studying, writing exams. Some will be parents who are kicking a soccer ball around with their kids in the backyard. Some who have a gift of leading will be planning the agenda for the next church board meeting. Some will be visiting a grieving family. Some people, when the Lord returns, some faithful people will be sleeping to rest up for the next day. The, the fact is, when the Lord returns, he just expects us to be doing faithfully what we would be doing even if he didn't return that day. Peter tells us here that pilgrims know the reality of our faith being tested. We who are pilgrims, exiles, he points out in his epistle, we're sometimes tested by the slander or the rejection of the unbelieving world. And in the midst of all that, we have the hope that it won't go on like this forever. The Lord will return and he will judge the living and the dead and he will make all things new. And so we know both those realities. But, but Peter says we really don't fixate on either one. 
The trials are real, but they're temporary. The Lord is coming, but we don't know when. What we know is that we just live as the faithful people of God in the here and now, serving God, serving one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have indeed given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that he who is exalted in heaven now will come again. His full glory revealed for all the world to see. And so as we live in the reality of the present, we do have hope. And so enable us to live joyfully and faithfully in the present, demonstrating to the world the difference that you make through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.